Alrighty back there. Good. Okay, so Although I um, I usually refer to my conversion as taking place when I was 21, there were numerous times before that while growing up when I felt a strong pull toward the Lord. Some of you might be able to identify with this. I'd have seasons of drawing close to him as a, as a kid, followed by a season of lukewarmness, and then sometimes even like drifting away, and then later a season of rededication and just kind of like an ongoing cycle. And I remember one occasion when I was around 13 or 14 years old when my mother noticed me reading my Bible and asked me what my favorite book was. And when I told her Revelation, she actually expressed disappointment. The sense was that I should be reading other parts of the Bible that would teach me to be a better person than waste my time on something occupied with the end of the world. And it was actually kind of hurtful, you know, another one of those I can never please you moments. (laughs) About an hour later, she apologized and told me that every book in God's Word has value. And I held on to this memory all these years because I found it somewhat comical that a mother would frown upon her teenage boy reading a book in the New Testament. Because there are, after all, there are, after all, worse things a teenage boy could be reading. And even yesterday, when she asked me, what are you preaching on tomorrow? She gave me that very same frown (laughs) when I answered her the book of Revelation. And this time there was no, well, every book in the Bible has value, apology that followed. So I told her that I would be using her comments as an illustration this morning, so all this was pre-approved, sort of, sort of. There is, um, of course, a general sense out there that that we probably have to some degree, all of us, that sees Revelation as having limited value. It's not like those other books that teach us to be a better person. But that simply is not the case. Granted, we don't find, you know, practical exhortations like we do in the Sermon on the Mount or the book of James, for instance, where guidelines for daily living are spelled out. In this book, it's actually about something deeper. It's about solidifying your convictions about Jesus himself and deciding whether he is worth suffering for and even dying for. It's about finding out what you are made of, whether you really are one of his disciples anchored in him, or if you're just going through the motions and your faith is just superficial. And what tests the metal of our convictions, of course, is hardship, including persecution. And this book has quite a bit to say about enduring hardship and persecution for the name of Christ. And so this book is immensely practical. It's all about exhorting us to be better persons, specifically better disciples, disciples that won't cave in when things get tough. So this morning we continue our study on it. Our present task, kind of like a three-part segment in the bigger series, is that of coming through its pages to see not what it says about the end of the world, but to see what it says about Jesus. As I have shared previously, there is much about Revelation that is hard to understand, but I have come to love and appreciate it because of those parts that are understandable. Indeed, there are many great and wonderful themes presented in this book that are unfortunately overlooked because we get sidetracked and bogged down in all the other stuff. One of those great and wonderful themes is what we call Christology, the doctrine regarding the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
In Revelation, a very high Christology prevails. All the great truths that highlight the uniqueness of Jesus are advanced in it. It is theologically rich in this regard. In just the first five chapters, what we have covered so far, there has been an emphasis on his resurrection from the dead, his exaltation in heaven and glorification, his pre-existence before creation, his divinity, his unique unity with God the Father, his immortality as the living one, his authority over death and Hades as the one who holds its keys, his authority over the nations as the ruler of the kings of the earth, the efficacy of his death, it has the power to save us from our sins, reconciling us to God. You'll remember the phrase, with his blood he purchased us for God. No other death could do that, only that of Jesus. We've also seen his unwavering commitment to his mission, to his father and to the truth as the faithful witness, faithful to the point of death. His second coming is affirmed in the early chapters as well, and what that second coming will bring, judgment upon the nations. And as the firstborn from the dead, his resurrection points to, guarantees, the future resurrection of all who are his, which will take place upon his return as well. The book begins in chapter 1, as you will remember, with a forceful and striking description of Jesus. In John's vision, he is radiant, powerful, mighty, wise, majestic, glorious, exalted. He is portrayed as the divine warrior who is set to go to war against God's enemies, strike down the nations with his sharp double-edged sword and rule over them with a rod of iron. He is also the sovereign judge who exercises righteous justice when he returns and establishes his eternal kingdom. The images are similar to those in Daniel's visions. And then in chapter 5, as we looked at, we see that only he, no one else, only he is worthy to take the scroll from the one who sits on the throne and open its seals, which then sets off a chain of events that culminates in the judgment of the earth, the overthrow of the powers of evil, the great day of judgment, and finally the creation of a new heavens and new earth. And as you will remember, in this, he becomes the object of worship from all creation, all creation. Everything and everyone in heaven, on earth, and under the earth join together in one voice, declaring him worthy to receive praise, honor, glory, and power. Again, the Christology in this book is just exceedingly rich. Now, for the original readers, these truths about Jesus are presented to provide the theological foundation and the encouragement they needed to endure hardships, especially persecution. Uh, the theme is pretty clear. Don't give up. Christ is worth suffering for. He is worth dying for. Contrary to th how things might appear to be at the moment, Jesus will bring about God's holy and perfect will to its completion. Nothing can stop him. Nothing can get in its way. Christ triumphed over the great enemy, death, and um, that if he did that, he will triumph over every other foe as well. Again, nothing can stop him. Nothing. Don't be discouraged. Don't give up. Those who endure to the end will be richly rewarded. And that message, of course, applies to us as well. Even if we are not facing the same intensity of persecution, we probably will be facing more of it in the years to come. And now is a time to just anchor ourselves in these truths. 
This theme, the authority of Jesus, and the charge to endure hardship and persecution is largely what the book of Revelation is, is about. So today we're going to continue with this, combing through the rest of the book to see what else it says about Jesus. Who is he? What does he do? What does he say? What virtues and attributes about him are highlighted? And so on. So four things before we dive in. First, from where we left off the last time, the beginning of chapter 6, to the end of chapter 18, the bulk of the book, this big middle section, Jesus is primarily working behind the scenes. You know, so he opens the seven seals and this in chapter 5, and this sets off a chain of events that are described in those chapters, that, that, that middle section there. The seventh seal includes the seven trumpets, and the, seven trump, and the seventh trumpet includes the seven bowls of wrath, and so on. These, these chapters in the middle primarily describe the judgments that fall upon the inhabitants of the earth, which again have been initiated by the actions of Jesus. So he is at work, but there aren't that many direct references to him, not until we get to chapter 19, where he, with power and glory, dramatically comes from the clouds, riding a white horse, followed by his armies from heaven. Nonetheless, there will be a few times in those middle chapters when Jesus is referred to, and so we will want to stop and take note of those. Secondly, what we find is that for the most part, anytime he is mentioned, it will in some way refer back to something that has already been established about him in the first five chapters. We actually don't find anything all that new regarding the person and work of Jesus from here on. Those first chapters are foundational in defining who he is and his mission. Thirdly, because this book, with all of its perplexing symbolism, can be challenging to interpret at times, there will be some occasions here where we just can't say for sure whether the subject in the passage is Jesus or someone else. Um, scholars and Bible commentators don't always agree on these sorts of things. And so when that happens, I'll point out the possibilities and just leave it at that. And we should note that with any of those, nothing significant rises or falls on how the passage is interpreted. It doesn't change any of the great doctrines about Christ that are affirmed in the rest of the book. And then fourthly, I just need to kind of like uh, remind us here that we're going to narrow our focus to that of Jesus. As tempting as it might be to explore other things going on in the passage or the chapter that come up, uh, we'll just have to limit our discussion to what is necessary in regards to our understanding of him. So hopefully you have your Bibles, and we'll be turning to many different passages, but um, I won't take time to always read them, trusting that you'll have that there in front of you. So let's start at the beginning of chapter 6. In the first two verses, John sees the Lamb opening the first of the seven seals, John then sees a rider on a white horse holding a bow and rides out as a conqueror bent on conquest. And he was given a crown so as to accomplish this. So the question of who is riding the white horse has been the subject of much discussion. As early as the second century, the church father Irenaeus identified the rider with Christ. And many have agreed with him. And this is because in chapter 19, Christ is riding a white horse. But others point out that this is pushing things too far, especially since these two writers don't really have anything else in common. And I would kind of tend to agree with this. Uh, the writer here in chapter 6 is one of the four horsemen, commonly referred to as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. They are each commissioned to go out and bring judgment upon the world, 
conquest, war, famine, and plague. And it seems unlikely that Jesus would be one of these horsemen who are sent out on such a mission. And given that he is already the ruler of the kings of the earth, as stated in chapter 1, it seems unlikely that he would now receive a crown so as to be empowered to go out and do this, as the passage talks about. So whatever the case may be, uh, the verses here, these two verses, don't really offer that much in the way of any Christology. All right, later in this chapter, in verses 12 through 17, upon the opening of the sixth seal, we have a great earthquake, the sun turns black, the moon turns blood red, stars fall out of the sky, and mountains and islands are leveled. It's a troublesome scene. And in response to such great peril, the inhabitants of the earth, from kings to slaves, rich and poor, everybody, they cry out to the mountains, pleading for some kind of an avalanche that would hide them, cover them, from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. So two things here are worth our attention. First, this is Christ's wrath. The judgments that come up on the earth from opening the seven seals are just that. They are judgments. Whether Christ is directly causing these calamities or simply giving permission to the powers of evil to have their way so as to accomplish Christ's purpose is another question. But in the end, those who are the objects of the tribulations recognize it for what it is, God's judgment. Secondly, we see here again the unique unity that Christ has with God the Father. The wrath is a wrath from both the one who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. And as we, as we will continue to see throughout John's visions, you know, they are seen together as equals. They share the same worship, they share the same throne, they share the same titles, and they both serve together as decisive actors in the drama that unfolds in this book. As we move, as we move on into chapter 7, we find another worship scene in the throne room of heaven. Here again in verse 10, worship is rendered to the one who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Christ's divinity is affirmed in his receiving of this worship, as is his unique unity, oneness with Almighty God. It's all, again, part of this high Christology of this book. In verse 15, we have a reference to Christ's atonement. Those who have, been washed, those who have washed their robes in his blood have been rendered clean and white. This is a vivid picture of justification provided for believers. And in verse 17, we see that the Lamb is at the center of the throne. And that particular image is very telling, that he's at the center of the throne. All right, moving on now to chapter 10, some commentators propose that the mighty angel there in verse 1 is a reference to Jesus, and the description could fit. He is robed in a cloud, there is a rainbow above his head, his face is like the sun, his legs are like fiery pillars, and he is holding a scroll. And when he shouts, it is like the roar of a mighty lion. And such images would certainly be in keeping with other images used of Jesus in this book. But the argument against it is pretty convincing. Jesus is never referred to as an angel in this book. And so it just doesn't really quite fit. And so it is suggested that these attributes describe the divine-like majesty and glory that has been imparted to this particular angel for a particular purpose. All right, as we move on into chapter 11, the seventh trumpet is sounded in verse 15. And upon this, loud voices in heaven are crying out, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Have you heard those words before? 
All right, they are familiar to believers and non-believers alike, thanks to Honda's Messiah. All right, they serve to highlight the significance of the seventh trumpet being sounded. Things are accelerating and intensifying. God's wrath upon the rebellious is reaching a new level. Things are happening that can only be explained by the supernatural hand of God, evidence to the world that God's kingdom is breaking forth. And here again, we see the oneness of the Father with the Son sharing together rulership over creation. The kingdom is a kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, a statement of joint sovereignty. Let's now, move, let's now consider chapter 12, and this is a, um, a tricky chapter. Well, they're all tricky in this book, but this one is for sure. There's much here we could talk about, but again, our interest is that of Jesus, and um, he is referred to here. In this chapter, it seems that the vision kind of like hits a pause button and takes a moment to explain the cause for the hostility that is about to break out upon the church. And this is because of a cosmic war in the heavenlies between the kingdom of God and the domain of Satan. Although the crucial battle has been won, as we've talked about in previous weeks, the adversary continues to unleash all he has and in his time remaining directs his rage against the faithful. His days are running out. And so he is kicking and screaming and biting and spitting and fighting right up to the, right up to the bitter end. But his doom is sure. And he knows that. Due to the events described in this chapter, the time period of this hostility referred to here probably extends from the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost to the return of Christ. So the chapter begins with two signs, a great wondrous sign of a woman clothed with the sun and another sign of an enormous red dragon. The woman is pregnant. And in verse 5, she gives birth to a boy who will one day rule the nations with an iron scepter. Uh, a boy that the dragon wants to devour. The child is, of course, Christ. The woman is most likely not a reference to Mary, but the description here with the symbolism probably refers to Israel, from which Jesus came. In particular, this would be the faithful saints of the Old Testament, those Israelites who through the centuries lived by God's law and were longing for the coming of the Messiah. It is out of faithful Israel that the Messiah will come. The dragon, of course, is the devil, and he has been cast out of heaven, and he is quite unhappy about that, and he is unhappy about the birth of Messiah, and he knows what all of this means. In verse 10, we see yet again a clear declaration of Christ's authority, which serves to give the readers the encouragement they need to endure. Regardless of how ugly things may get, Christ is in charge. Don't forget that. The devil is throwing a hissy fit, and as a result, things will get broken. People will get hurt. Verse 17, and some, even God-fearing believers, will die. But his doom is sure. Don't give up. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Christ is worth suffering for. In verses 10 and 11, the sovereign rule of God becomes a present reality in that, um, in these words here, the accuser of our brothers has been, the accuser of our brothers has been hurled down. So Satan's accusations against the righteous continue night and day, but by virtue of the death of Christ, the devil is unable to successfully large, lodge a charge against God's people. Thus the words, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, in verse 11. Great words. 
So though this vision depicts the army in the, or depicts the battle in military terms, it is essentially a legal battle in which the arguments of Satan, the loser, are rendered useless. Now for chapter 13. And this is probably the most read chapter in the whole book. <laughs> Everybody's read chapter 13. And non-believers quote from it all the time, especially Hollywood, all that business about the number 666. So it's all in here. So in this chapter, the focus turns to the two great servants of the dragon, two different beasts, one that comes up out of the sea and the other that comes from the earth. The first beast is often referred to as the Antichrist and the second beast as the false prophet. Our interest in this chapter is found in verse 8 where we find the mention of the book of life, a divine registry, if you will, that contains the names of those who will enter the kingdom of God at the end of the age. And this is one of six times that the book of life is referred to in Revelation. Verse 8 claims that it belongs to the Lamb, and this is because those whose names have been written in it are those who have been purchased for God by the Lamb's blood. And without his atoning death, there would be no book of life. We also learn from verse 8 that the Lamb was slain from the creation of the world. That is, it was decreed in the councils of eternity past. Even before there was an Adam and Eve, there was a plan to rescue their offspring from sin, and that plan involved the agonizing death of God the Son. And it was formed and decreed in the eternal counsels of the Godhead before creation itself. All right, in chapter 14, we, uh, we, uh, John sees the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who have his name and his father's name written on their foreheads there in verse 1. Uh, this name or mark on their foreheads represents allegiance and service, even ownership. Now, we're not going to take time now to figure out who the 144,000 are. In spite of what the Jehovah's Witnesses claim, I'm not all that convinced that this is a reference to them, but that's what they say. The verse is of interest to us because um, it is yet another contribution to the high Christology of the book. God Almighty and Jesus are, yet again, portrayed as sharing equally together in the same role. In this case, both of their names are written on the foreheads of Christ's followers. Both are objects of allegiance. You can't be devoted to one without being devoted to the other. And Jesus taught that. And, and um, the same idea is found again in verse 4, where the 144,000 are offered up as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. So you simply just cannot read Revelation without being impacted by its high Christology, even if you were not looking for it or even taking time to notice it. It just permeates the whole book. In verse 14, John sees a white uh, cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man and uh, with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And this description, of course, fits Christ. And the reader here would be reminded of a vision in Daniel 7 where one like a son of man comes with the clouds of heaven to receive universal and everlasting dominion. The golden crown, of course, identifies him as the ruler of the kings of the earth. The sharp sickle is the instrument of harvest and portrays the son of man prepared to reap the harvest of earth um, in righteous retribution. The day of reckoning has come. Now, the verses at the end of the chapter are pretty graphic regarding the intensity of this day of reckoning. 
Along this line, we might just jump up and notice verse 10, where we see that those who worship the beast and receive his mark will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the Lamb and his angels forever and ever. It's a disturbing verse. Uh, to, dis to suffer in the presence of the Lamb is not to lessen the fierceness of the judgment, to, but to make it even more grievous. Our next reference to Christ is found in chapter 16. However, it is somewhat implicit. In verse 15, we have a warning interjected into um, this vision about the sixth bowl of wrath. And that warning incorporated something Jesus said during his earthly ministry found in the Gospels. Behold, I come like a thief. So the reader is urged, being urged here to stay alert for the time is near. Christ could return at any moment, even when you least expect him. Uh, the whole business here about not being caught without clothes on is probably referring to the battle readiness of a soldier on the battlefield who can't afford to be taken by surprise. He sleeps with his clothes on. So hold that image of just being ready at all, at all times. In the end, this passage has more to say about how we are to be ready and prepared than it does about Jesus himself, but it does nonetheless illustrate again that he is in charge, that he does have a plan, and he knows not only how, but also when to execute it. And even if, from our perspective, things appear to be dragging out, you know, the case is he does have a plan, and he knows how and when to execute it. In verse, uh, sorry, in chapter 17, we now find that many forces have joined the beast and have turned over their power and authority to him or it. Uh, they have pledged their allegiance and shared together in the same hostility toward Christ and his followers. In verse 14, the scene passes on quickly to the final conflict between the beast and the lamb. And when that occurs, which will be two chapters from now, the Lamb is promised here in this chapter a quick and decisive victory. And this because he is the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And that, ex that title doesn't need much ex explanation. As great and powerful as the beast may be, it is no match for the ruler of the kings of the earth, the one to whom everyone will ultimately be subordinate. And now for chapter 19. Is everyone hanging with me so far? Chapter 19, things take a dramatic turn, and a turn for the better, or at least from the perspective of the believer. The chapter begins with another worship scene in the throne room of heaven. God is being praised for his righteous judgments, in particular for the condemnation of the great prostitute, who not only corrupted the earth with her adulteries, but also persecuted God's people. And in being overthrown, judged, and punished, the blood of Christ's servants has been avenged, and for this God is worship. We're going to come back in the future weeks here at some point and talk more about that. John then hears what sounds like a great multitude shouting, shouting, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. What beautiful words. These are great. The bride, as we know, is the church and it will now at last be forever united with the lamb. The realization that this long-awaited day has finally come just overpowers John, who falls to his knees in worship. He understands the significance of, of what all this means. However, the one he falls before is an angel, um, the messenger, and the angel tells him to stop it, don't do that, <laughs> and reminds him that only God is worthy of worship. 
And since Christ is worshipped multiple times in this book, this particular incident here adds even more weight to the claim of Christ's divinity. In verse 9, we have a reference to the marriage feast itself, a great banquet celebrating the union of Christ and the church, and the Lord's Supper, which we will observe here shortly, in some ways serves as a preview of that great banquet. Uh, we are proclaiming his death until he comes, which means that we are proclaiming that he will come, that a banquet is ahead of us. All right, in verses 11 and 16 of the same chapter, we have a dramatic change taking place now. Christ is no longer working behind the scenes, but barges into the picture as this divine warrior that we saw in chapter 1, a great conquering king who arrives with his heavenly armies to overthrow the beast and those who have pledged allegiance to it. He appears on a white horse, ready for war. His blazing eyes reflect his determined resolve to carry out his mission. His robe, dipped in blood, symbolizes his sacrificial death that decided this impending victory long ago. His many crowns indicate absolute sovereignty. His name, the Word of God, testifies to his fulfilling his divine mission. With his arrival, the promises of God are being fulfilled. Thus, he really is the one who can rightly be called faithful and true. As the Word of God, he is the proclamation of both salvation and judgment. And with his sharp, double-edged sword, also referred to back in chapter 1, he will strike down God's enemies. Out of his mouth comes a death-dealing pronouncement that goes forth like a sharp blade. He treads the winepress of the fury, the wrath of God. This is a, a powerful and frightening image of absolute crushing, a picture of utter destruction. The shedding of their blood is just payment for their slaughter of the saints. And on his robe, he bears the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Christ the Lamb is sovereign over all. And he is now showing this to be true by destroying the world of evil and the cosmic forces over it. The rider on the white horse back in chapter 6, if you will remember, brought conquest and war. A war that actually began many wars. This rider on a white horse also brings conquest and war. But it is a war to end all wars. Accompanying him are the armies of heaven, dressed in fine linen, white and clean, clear, clean. So nowhere in Revelation is the victorious Christ portrayed in symbols and language more likely to convince the reader that in, that in spite of the devil's best efforts, the Lamb will emerge triumphant in the end. Stand firm. I mean, this is the ongoing message here. Even if it's not explicitly stated, it's implicit every, in, it, in every chapter. Let nothing move you. You've got to hang in there. The persecution and hardship will not endure forever. Christ is in charge. All things will be made right. The enemies will be overthrown. A day of reckoning is upon us soon. The blood of the martyrs will be avenged. The eternal kingdom of God is coming, and nothing can stop it. Nothing. Your faithfulness will be rewarded. Christ, yes, he's worth suffering for. Keep at it. He is worth dying for. Keep at it. In the remaining verses of the chapter, the beast and the false prophet, they are defeated, condemned, and thrown into the lake of fire. It doesn't appear to be, from what you read here, any great battle or messy war. There is no need for one. The beast is simply captured and punished, as are all the great rulers of the nations that followed him. They're, these um, rulers are killed by the rider on the white horse, and their bodies are discarded to be devoured by the birds of prey. 
It's a disturbing image, but the scene is the scene here is not just one of ultimate destruction, but also that of ultimate dishonor. And now for chapter 20. The first six verses deal with something commonly referred to as the millennial kingdom, a thousand-year period where those who have died as martyrs are resurrected to reign with Christ for a thousand years. Now we have more questions about all this than we have answers. <laughs> this is a very this these verses have been studied a lot through the centuries. The questions are many. Is the thousand years literal, or is this symbolic for a fullness of time? Is Christ reigning on earth or from heaven? Do the martyrs who reign with him reign on earth or from heaven? Are, those who, um, are only those who were beheaded for Jesus resurrected, as the, as the passage says, or is that a figure of speech for all the saints? The passage speaks of the rest of the dead being resurrected after the thousand years. Well, who are they? The passage also says that Satan is chained up in the abyss during this time in prison so that he can't deceive the nations. Well, what exactly does this mean? And what happens during the millennial kingdom? Those who are resurrected, what do they do? Who do they reign over exactly? And do we have a situation where on earth, um, in its current state, it finds itself populated by both the resurrected and the non-resurrected, and so on. Lots of questions. There are essentially four schools of thought about the nature and timing of this thousand-year period. I've not found any of them to be all that compelling, and I might try to deal with this later in the series, but no promises. <laughs> For today, our interest is that of Jesus, and the passage here about the millennial kingdom actually doesn't make any substantial contribution to our understanding of who he is. So we're just going to gladly move on. All right. <clears throat> In the verses that follow, the devil, death, and hell are thrown to the lake of fire where they join the beast and the false prophet. The wicked are judged, and they too are sent to the lake of fire, which is also referred to as the second death. The universe, I want you to think of this, has now been purified from... Uh, been purified of the curse and from its effects. Rebellion against God is at this point no more, and potential for future rebellion is no more. And so it is time to start afresh, as we see in chapter 21. And chapter 21 is just a beautiful and rich chapter. I'm sure you've all read it probably a number of times. I love reading it at graveside services, but I only read it for those that I know to be believers. And I have read it at the bedside of some who were either in the hospital or at home dying. I wanted their last moments to be that of these rich and profound images that inspire such great hope and promise. <clears throat> For this morning, we have two verses that we want to take a quick note of, 22 and 23. John, in his vision, he writes, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. So there's no temple because the symbol has given way to reality. It is replaced by the Lord Almighty and the Lamb. The presence of God the Father and His Son permeates and sanctifies all that the Jerusalem temple symbolized. And in the same way, the heavenly city has no need of the sun or moon to shine over it, this because it is illuminated by the glory of God, the splendor that will radiate for the presence of God and the Lamb. And so yet again, we see another example of the Father and Son sharing together a unique role and relationship. The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The glory of God gives its 
light, and the Lamb is its lamp. So as noted earlier, the book of Revelation is filled with these examples. We've seen many of them, and they all testify to Christ's divinity. He is co-equal, co-eternal, and co-essential with the Father. And now finally, chapter 22. The book of Revelation begins with Jesus and ends with Jesus. At the beginning of the chapter, we find two more examples of the Father and Son sharing together the same role and relationship. In verse 1, the river of the water of life flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in verse 3, the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and they will be served by their servants. And then in verse 7, we have the familiar words of Jesus, Jesus promising his return. In verse 12, this is reemphasized yet again with the promise of rewards that Christ will give to everyone who, according to what they have done. So it is the quality of a person's life that provides the ultimate indication of what that person actually believes, what their convictions really are. This is followed in verse 13 with Jesus attributing to himself divine titles. This is important. In chapters 1 and 21, it was God the Father who identified himself as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Now, the risen Christ applies these titles to himself. And in so doing, he sets himself apart from the entire created order. And this is, again, an implicit claim to divinity. As the Alpha and Omega, first and last, beginning and end, he and the Father precede and originate all things as their creator and will bring all things to their final fulfillment. In verse 16, Jesus now authenticates the various visions John has seen and um, that John has recorded. I have sent my angel to give you this testimony. He then identifies himself as the root and the offspring of David. And this is a title that was used of him in the throne room back in chapter 5. You might remember that to highlight the fact that he is the promised Messiah. And Jesus also here refers to himself as the bright morning star, which is a reference to a prophecy about the Messiah back in the book of Numbers. And as a result of that prophecy, the star became a familiar symbol in Jewish writings for the promised Christ. So now, verses 17 and 18, Jesus extends an invitation to those who read everything John has um, written down, an invitation to take the free gift that to those who read what John has written down are extended an invitation to take the free gift of the water of life, and also a warning that those who add to the prophecies or take anything away from them will suffer accordingly. It's a, it's a sober warning. And I suspect that this warning could also include the advancing of interpretations as truth, you know, hard conclusions that have no proper foundation. So if you claim that something in Revelation means this, and it turns out that it doesn't, that amounts to the same thing as changing its content, its message. And so this is a warning to be careful with all that. Hold your interpretations of the symbolic language with a light grip and be careful about advancing hard conclusions, especially when you start talking about it to others. And then finally, verses 20 and 21. So at the very close of the book, we are again reminded that God's eternal plan, history itself, remains incomplete until Christ returns. And that is how the book concludes. It is for this final act in the great drama of redemption that the church waits with great longing Yes, I am coming soon, Jesus promises, to which we respond, Amen, come Lord Jesus. Yes, I'm coming soon, to which we respond, Amen, come Lord Jesus. 
And with this, the promise and longing for Christ to return, you know, the book of Revelation ends. It is, it, the book serves here to embolden its readers from the first century on to the present day that God's eternal plan will indeed come to pass and that nothing can stop it. That's the message. And during this interim, there will be hostility and opposition, but it will eventually pass. People will be faced with the crucial decision of pledging their allegiance to the enemy or to the Lamb. They're not given other options. It's one or the other. If you're not for Christ, you are against him. Those who choose to wear the mark of the enemy will ultimately share the enemy's fate. Those who choose to follow the Lamb, who embrace his salvation and lordship, will be brought into eternal fellowship with God in the new Jerusalem. Believers are therefore encouraged to remain faithful, to trust, and to wait expectantly for the return of Christ, who will forever put away all evil and usher in the coming eternal kingdom of God in all of its glory and wonder. That's the gospel. This is our hope. This is what we anchor our convictions on. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. You know, he is the lamb who was slain, the lamb who, the lamb who rose, conquered, and reigns as the triumphant and conquering king. Amen. Amen indeed.